Well, good morning, church family. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, it's fun to start with having everyone kind of describe themselves using one word. And it's kind of difficult to to put your life, to sum, summarize your life with one word. But uh, I heard the word blessed. I heard the word adventurous. And, um, and as I've been reflecting on my life, I realized that over the years, the way in which I would describe myself has actually changed. And, and as I look back, I realize now how I was on this quest really to discover my identity. I was on this search to, to figure out who I was and to really find my place in this world. And in my younger years, I would have identified myself as, uh, the oldest son of a business owner. I was a California kid and I was a, a good athlete and a natural team leader. And so at this point in my life, in my early childhood, I would have identified myself by my family, by my birthplace, and by my activities. But then in sixth grade, my family moved to Colorado, and I started to hang out with uh, a little bit different of a crowd. I began snowboarding, and I, I started to skate, and uh, it was my generation of skaters and snowboarders who remember society not joyfully embracing us because of our clothing style and our careless attitudes. I don't know how many of you remember this or not, but Keystone uh, Ski Resort they didn't allow snowboarders on their mountain. And, and we kind of wore that as a badge of honor, you know, like, hey, they, they think we're too uh, rebellious or, or too much of a, a problem child to, to even, even ride on their mountain. And uh, so that was kind of fun. But in high school, I, I lost interest in skating, and I started to gain interest more in my friends and cars and girls and uh, at that time, I just continued to make more and more friends, and, and this crowd dressed differently. This was the era of Abercrombie and American Eagle, and so I began to also at this time develop a reputation of just being a fun-loving, life-of-the-party type of person. Well, then in college, another big change again, I got really into weightlifting and bodybuilding, and at the same time was living the stereotypical college life. And so over the years, I've identified myself as an athlete, as a snowboarder, as a skater, as a preppy, as a meathead, uh, one who knows how to have a good time and who is always game for an adventure. And it's just funny to look at that list because you would think, man, th these things are, are not congruent with one another. Th these are big shifts, big changes in the search for my identity. But when I came to know Jesus about midway through college, he started to slowly strip away these things that I once tried to define myself by or the things I once looked to for my significance. And he began to build within me an understanding that my identity was now in Christ. I could stop trying to make something of myself or to validate my existence or my worth through the things that I did or tried to make of myself. And while my personality, I believe, hasn't changed much, uh, I believe the things that I love, the things I pursue and prioritize in my life are radically different than they once were. Now, I'll willfully confess that I'm still a piece of work. I'm, uh, I'm in process, just like the rest of mankind. But one thing I know for sure is that Jesus has changed me, and I can never be the same. 
Well, this morning we are beginning our study through the book of Ephesians, which I believe is one of the most timely and needed books of the Bible for our Western church today. The Apostle Paul is the one given credit for being the author of this letter, and we're going to see that in a moment in his introduction. And he is writing to the church, the churches in Ephesus. And the recipients of this letter are Christians. As recorded in Acts chapter 18, we see how they came to faith during Paul's second missionary journey. And this was pretty typical, the way Paul did things. He would travel through uh, different regions of the known world. He would preach the gospel in cities. And as people would believe, a church would be born. But upon preaching in Ephesus and seeing this young church born, uh, we don't exactly know why, but, but Paul departed rather quickly. Uh, but later on, in a later uh, missionary journey, he returned, and he actually stayed with this church for two years, teaching them what it looked like to follow Jesus. And just for a little history, Ephesus was a city along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It was the capital of the Robin, the Roman province of Asia, excuse me. It was a significant in that it functioned kind of as this link between the east and west halves of the Roman Empire. It was the connection point. And it's estimated that there were about 250,000 people in population at the time of this city, which is a big city in that day and age. And it's awesome because the ruins of this city, uh, you can go visit, you can go tour it today, and they're in modern-day Turkey. And so as Paul is writing this letter, it's around 62 A.D., And he is writing actually from a prison cell. Paul has been arrested for his faith. He's been taken to Rome and, and he's, he's going to be tried and sentenced pretty soon here. And yet, uh, as we're going to read and see through the theme and the teaching of this letter, you would have never guessed that this man was bound by chains. In fact, if he wouldn't have explicitly told us that he was in chains, you, you would have thought, man, this is the most free, most alive, most peaceful, most satisfied man on the planet. This guy is just filled with hope and, and joy and excitement. And it had nothing to do with his circumstance. It had everything to do with what he had come to know about his Savior, Jesus Christ. And so with that, let's read the first half of verse 1. Paul introduces himself like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And we're just going to pause right there. The first question in your notes is this, is what has Paul come to understand about himself? And and we really see Paul give some uh, identity statements about himself here in his introduction. He says he's an apostle. Okay, so an apostle is a person who is sent on behalf of, of another. It's a, a representative who carries the same authority as the one who has sent them. And Paul is saying, I am one who has been sent by Jesus Christ. I come with his authority. And then we learn how this came to be. He says, how, how is it that I'm an apostle? Well, it's by the will of God. We've been in the book of Acts earlier this year, and we saw how Paul came to faith in Christ and was really appointed to this role of an apostle. And the funny thing is that it was not of his choosing. Jesus didn't approach Paul and say, hey, Paul, um, I just, you know, I, I really need somebody to, to step up and to be an apostle for me. Do you, do you think you'd be willing to do that for me? Do you think you could, do you think that'd be all right with you? No, in fact, it was the opposite. Jesus stopped Paul in his tracks and redirected his life against his will. And just so you don't, uh, just 
swallow that hook, line, and sinker. Let's let's read it and see how this actually happened. Acts chapter nine, verses one through nine. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for a letter to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, that is those who follow Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. All right, so here we see Paul, you know, actually trying to stop the spread of the gospel, to to stop the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And Jesus shows up in a beam of heavenly light, knocks Paul on the ground. And Paul immediately knows that this dude has some real and legitimate power. And we know from his question, right, he's, who are you, Lord? I don't know who you are, but I know you have power and I know well enough that I'm going to call you Lord. And Jesus himself uh, throws out this introduction, but then he wastes no time telling Paul what to do. He says, Paul, get up, go into the city, and you're going to be told what to do. And oh, by the way, you're going to be blind temporarily for three days. Now, to the American mindset, this just seems outrageous, right? Nobody tells me what to do. I call the shots. I call my, I say what I, where my destiny is heading. And yet, even though Paul here, uh, this was not his plan, this was not his will, this was not his choice, he followed Jesus' command. And later on, we see, as Paul's writing in his letter, he concludes that there is nothing of higher value than knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord. You see, although it was against Paul's will, he knew this was the most significant thing that had ever happened to him, and he praised God for stopping in his track, stopping him in his tract and redirecting his life. So when Paul starts this letter by saying, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, this isn't just some common greeting between friends, right? Like, hi, it's Matt, your buddy, I'm writing to you again. No, no, no. This is a statement of his identity and of his calling and the acknowledgement that has all been given to him by Jesus Christ. Paul was not a self-appointed leader within the church. He was appointed to his role by the will of God. And here we see in the second half of verse 1, he he addresses the church with this identity uh, statement. He says this, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. What is the identity of those who are in Christ? They are saints. This is the identity of everyone who has trusted Christ through the gospel. Many people in our day and age will say, hey, you know, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And and that is true. But it is also true that if you have been saved by grace through faith, you are now a saint. 
Your identity is no longer sinner. We were sinners and we still wrestle with sin, but in Christ we are holy and blameless in God's sight. We are saints who can sin. But if the blood of Jesus has covered your sin, past, present, and future, by His grace, through through faith, then you are a saint. And what is true of saints? Well, it says that they are faithful in Christ. We will see Paul use this term, in Christ, or its equivalent, some 27 times throughout this letter. I think Paul wants us to understand something. It's like every other sentence that says, in Christ, through Christ, by Christ. And Paul wants us to understand that he is, he is making it clear what the source of our identity, where the source of our identity is found and where the strength to live out this Christian life is found. And it's only through this rich relationship with God in Christ. And here's the deal about us being saints is that as Christians, we receive our sainthood. We don't achieve it. Everything that is ours in Christ is something we receive, not something we have achieved. And Paul is addressing every person in the church at this time saying, if you are in Christ, you are a saint. Now, some of you may have a Catholic background, and this could be uh, really hard for you to wrap your mind around. You see, Catholics teach uh, something completely different about sainthood. And according to the Catholic Education Resource, Resource Center, um, there is this extensive process involved in recognizing anyone as a saint. And I want to run through that process for you really quick, just so you have an understanding. First of all, there's a, uh, the, the first section is called investigation. Investigation. And this is where a local bishop, uh, wherever, wherever this supposed saint is, will investigate the candidate's life and their writings, perhaps, for evidence of heroic virtue. The information that, that is gathered and uncovered by this bishop is then submitted and sent to the Vatican. At the Vatican, there's a panel of theologians, there's a panel of cardinals that, that come together and they comprise what's called the Congregation for Cause of Saints. And this congregation evaluates all of this information about the candidate's life. And if the panel approves and says, okay, yeah, we, we believe that they are of high Catholic virtue, then the, the Pope proclaims them to be um, an, exceptional, um, a, an exceptional person of faith. But after this investigation process, um, there's, there's two more steps still in order to be called a saint. And the next one is beautification. In order to beautify a candidate, there must be evidence that the person is responsible for a miracle. And not just any miracle, a miracle that occurred after their death, but a miracle that can be attributed to their prayers. So someone prayed something during their life, they died, and after their death, that, that a miracle happened right in line with something that they prayed. The only other caveat to beautification is if you are a martyr. If you have died for a religious cause, you can be beautified without evidence of a miracle. So that's the, the, the next step in the process. And the last step is canonization. In order for a candidate to be considered a saint, they must, uh, they must have proof of a second miracle as well. 
And if there is proof of this second miracle, this this person can then be canonized by the Pope. And this is an irrevocable status within the Catholic Church that says, you are a saint. And the Catholics believe that saints carry the 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 ability and the spiritual power that that we are called to pray to them and that uh that we ask them to pray on our behalf but as you read through scripture in nowhere do you see anything about praying to a saint ever you see that we have direct access to God through Jesus Christ alone that every single one of us can approach the throne of grace because of Jesus Christ and I believe what, what this Catholic idea of sainthood has really done is devastated the church because many of my Catholic friends who would profess Christ would in the same breath say this, well, you know, I'm no saint. And they would use that to, to justify um, uh, all, all the, the different shortcomings or sin that are in their lives because it's like, well, I'll never, I'll never be able to measure up to sainthood because look at the process a saint has to go through. And yet, according to Paul, if you are in Christ, you are declared a saint. I think it's important for us to to ask the question then, so what do I do with the present sin in my life? Because if we're honest, many of us don't feel like saints, right? We see our own brokenness. We see our own struggles. We are constantly tempted by the world and by our flesh, And here's what I believe our present sin should do. Here's what I believe the purpose that God still allows us to wrestle with sin. And he doesn't just completely say, poof, you're perfect. I think our present battles with sin keep us humble. They keep us humble and that we have to acknowledge our ongoing need for the grace of God. Our wrestles with sin should keep us humble. But not only should they keep us humble, they should keep us hopeful. They should keep us hopeful for the day when we will no longer sin, when we will be in the unhindered presence of God for all eternity, where joy and love and peace and and delight will reign forever. Allow your present sin and the wrestle of it to keep you humble, but also to keep you hopeful. See, I believe that this misunderstanding about our identity is one of the leading reasons why professing Christians look more like the world than like Jesus. Sure, we might profess Christ, but we are still frantically going about trying to prove ourselves or to to show uh, other people that we have value or significance by the things we're able to accomplish or uh, the spiritual disciplines we're able to uh, commit ourselves to. If we are in Christ, the reality is that you are declared a saint and it has nothing to do with your performance. And it has everything to do with the performance of another on your behalf. Well, how can this be? The theological term for this is called imputed righteousness. This means that it's the righteousness of another person or the perfection of another person applied to you, given to you, bestowed upon you. You could say you took someone else's uh, performance and, and you put it on like a jacket. 
And in Romans chapter 4, Paul explains to us that the only way that someone else's righteousness uh, can be imputed to you, uh, the only means through which any of us can be righteous is through faith. And in reference to Abraham in Romans 4.22, Paul writes this, This is why his faith, Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. Now that's quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that after God called Abram to leave his his homeland and his father, um, it says this, that Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. You see, Abraham was a man chosen by God through whom he would make the nation of Israel. And when God spoke to Abraham, he said, Abraham, uh, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great people. And you're then going to be a blessing. Your people are going to be a blessing to the entire world, to all the nations of the earth. And we now know that the way through which God would do that is because he would send a savior through those people. From the people that God made out of Abraham would come the Messiah, would come the Savior, namely Jesus Christ, who would be the blessed Savior of the entire world for all who would believe. And Abraham, just like Paul, they heard the voice of God and they believed and they followed, they obeyed. And so here's here's the big deal. is the only thing you or I have to do to achieve sainthood. The only thing we need to have Jesus' righteousness applied to us is to believe in the one who has the power to do so. And in fact, we, we really don't achieve sainthood. All we do is receive it. It's there. God has offered it. Just as John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And if you have believed this morning, then when God looks at you, He does not see a worthless sinner. He does not see a screw-up. He sees a saint. He sees a son. He sees a daughter because when he looks upon you, he doesn't see your performance. He sees the perfection of Christ, imputed righteousness. Jesus's perfect performance applied to us by faith. Now, what is the main focus of this letter? The last question we'll ask this morning. Well, we titled this study, through the book of Ephesians, identity. That's that's the main title of it. But the subtitle is this, Becoming Who We Are in Christ. Becoming who we are. So there's this reality that our identity has already been declared, and yet each one of us is still in the process of becoming more like who God has declared us to be. And the book of Ephesians is outlined this way. Paul starts by writing to remind them of the depths of the blessings that flow from this mystery of their union with Christ. And the first three chapters are just packed with what is true about you if you are in Christ. These declarative identity statements towards the people of God who have received Christ by faith. 
And then the last three chapters are just packed with instructions and commands about how we are to live because of our identity in Christ. And what makes all the difference in the world is the order in which we understand these things. We must realize that what is true must precede what we do. And what we believe must inform how we then behave. To get this wrong is is to get the Christian life wrong. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has done something for us that we can never do for ourselves. He performed perfectly in our place through his life. He died sacrificially on the cross in our place for our sin. And he rose victoriously over death, conquering the condemning power of sin itself. Therefore, Christianity is all about what God has done to save us and not about what we are able to do to save ourselves. This, friends, is the most liberating truth on the planet. That you and I don't have to earn our salvation. We don't have to prove our worth to God. It is all given to us in and through Jesus Christ. Now, let's be honest for a moment. I think for uh, the Western mind, this is probably one of the most hard and difficult concepts to embrace. This is really hard to believe because what we're taught in our culture is that, man, work hard. Work your way up the ladder. Take pride in what you are able to achieve. You know, make something of yourself. Prove that you are worth something by all the things you're able to accomplish in this life. And you know, uh, our, our self-worth really can rise and fall based upon how well we perceive we're doing in comp- comparison to those around us. But if you are in the household of God, you are a saint. And in the household of God, there are no social class differences and there are no racial barriers. In Christ, we are equals We are loved, we are valued, and we are significant, and we all have a place in the church. In fact, as as Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians, uh, everything he is directing is commands to the church, not commands to individuals. And in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter puts it this way, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession." that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You know, many in our day and age and many in this room, you you maybe are guilty of saying this at one point in time. We're just saying, you know what? I love Jesus. I really do. I love Jesus. But I don't need the church. Well, friends, that's like saying, man, I, I just love coffee But, you know, I don't need coffee beans. You know, many many in this room, many here might might feel like you've been burned by the church. And I don't want to make light of that. You know, we are are able to hurt each other still, and it is not fun. It is painful. It causes wounds. I want to acknowledge that. But we also have to continue to cling to the reality that Jesus himself said that our love for one another is going to be one of the biggest defining attributes of his followers. 
that as we operate in grace and forgiveness, patience and kindness, we can work through the wounds that we inflict on one another. We can believe the best and we can forgive and we can seek forgiveness when we are in the wrong. And I just think that you can't honestly read the Bible and conclude anything different. Because honestly, the, the church, according to the New Testament scriptures, has a central place in the life of a Christ follower. I don't think there's anything, uh, that, I don't think you could say that there's a churchless Christian. For the church is the body of Christ. We are a people for God's possession. Well, here for us at Redemption Church, we believe that there's a biblical pattern uh, of the way the church should gather in different contexts and for different purposes. See, we gather on Sunday mornings uh, to worship God and, and to come under the word. This is more of a corporate gathering where we all come together. But then we worship in small groups. We, we gather in what we call regroups. They, they meet in homes throughout the city, and, and in these groups we engage in deeper relationship with one another. We spur each other on in the faith. And we really believe that while this is a biblical pattern, that, that these are just the environments that, that really act as the greenhouse for our spiritual growth. If we're committed to one another, if we spur one another on, we're, we're forced to be patient with one another and kind and forgiving. And just as Paul is writing this letter to the church, so I believe it reveals our need, our desperate need to be in relationship with one another. As a constant reminder of the magnitude of what is in Christ, because you know what? This life can beat us down pretty quick. We can lose heart. We can grow weary. But God says, hey, don't neglect meeting together. Because if you do, it's going to get hard fast. It's hard enough being together and carrying each other's burdens, but you try to do this on your own and you're, you're done for. So that's verse one. Paul introducing himself and Paul declaring our definition or our sainthood, our identity as in Christ. And then verse two, we'll just tackle one more verse here real quick. Paul says, grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. This is one of Paul's classic introductions uh, in many of his letters, but it is significant nonetheless. Paul is acknowledging that all we have is because of the sheer grace of God, and that is through grace alone that we can have peace. Again, this is important to note the order that Paul says, grace before he says peace because the reality is is only when you or I have received the grace of God does peace flow from that grace is an undeserved gift it is the righteousness of God imputed to us we did not deserve that but if that is true of you this is the only means by which you have found peace for your soul it's the only way to, to have peace. You know, I, I don't think I need to tell you this, but we live in a restless world that is on this quest to find ourselves. We are on a 
quest to create our own identity, and, and we can see it through social media, through the things you like, the political views you hold, the people you associate with, what you believe you were able to make of yourself, or what you were able to accomplish. And yet, isn't it fascinating that that while the the motto of our society and, and the the vision our society gives us is is go chase your dreams, go make something of yourself, you can do it. And yet at the same time, we live in the most depressed, the most medicated, the most anxious, and the most confused culture that has ever existed. We're a mess. And it's because we've believed this lie that we have to go create an identity for ourselves apart from the identity that God has declared to be true of us. And us in the church, we're just as guilty of believing this lie. But I think Paul is going to correct our minds and hearts through this letter to the church of Ephesus. And I think we're going to see very clearly that uh, only through Christ can we receive grace. That only through Christ can we find lasting peace. And only through Christ can we rest in our identity as saints. You see, the church of Ephesus, like us today, I don't believe they realized the magnitude of what was theirs in Christ. And we're going to get to dive pretty deep into this great and glorious mystery because it's my heart, even for myself, is that I want to marvel anew. I want a fresh perspective of the magnitude of God's grace. I want to walk every day in peace and who God has declared me to be. And my hope for all of us is as we study through this book, we would just become so anchored and secured in our identity, and that nothing would be able to shake us from who God has declared us to be. Let's pray.